Awesome. Let, let's turn. Let's turn to Romans. If you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Romans uh, per many people's request. Uh, and having come off James, which was incredibly challenging, it's interesting that we're in Romans because Romans is also incredibly challenging, uh, spe- specifically these first three three uh, uh, chapters. And so we are in chapter two. Uh, part one, and if you were with us last week in chapter one, that was pretty confronting, uh, and today, unfortunately, is going to be even more confronting for us, uh, but it's, you know, as Paul says there uh, in chapter one, verse 16, we don't need to be ashamed about even the hard things in the Bible, because uh, they are necessary, they're necessary things, right? Uh, and, and, and just, if you're not overly familiar with Romans, uh, before we read two, jump to chapter three, <clears throat> and look at chapter three here, verse down there in verse 22, all right? Because this is, this is where Paul is heading, okay? Uh, everything he's saying here in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is, is basically building up to this point uh, that he's already hinted at there in the beginning, but, but he, he says it plainly here in 22 of chapter 3. He says this righteousness, all right? And righteousness is this idea of, of a holy God, a just God uh, looking on you with favor, looking on you and accepting you. Uh, right? He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And, and that's obviously that's the, that's the, the, the gospel message in a nutshell there, right? in, in a very compact form. Uh, of that verse, though, we're in the negative part of, of verse 23, which is Paul basically making his case that it's true that all have sinned, all right? All have sinned, whether you're Jew, meaning you have a religious background, uh, or you're a non-Jew, a Gentile, doesn't matter. Everyone has sinned, right? And that's what we talked a little bit about last week, and last week was more kind of talking about the world out there, right? And and chapter 2 here is more about, about all of us in here. Right? And, and, and driving home that point, right? That makes sense? And, and you remember we talked about that quote from uh, the, the, the preacher philosopher guy, Alexander, I don't even know how to say his surname, you know, but he, he says that the line between good and evil runs not between us and them, but down the middle of each of us. And, that, and that's Paul's aim. He's trying to help us to see uh, that, that a common attitude amongst religious people in Paul's day and is still prevalent within religious people today uh, is this idea of its... Of, the, the world is divided into good and bad people. And that's not a biblical thought, right? Uh, and, and we need to understand that that, 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 that uh, disconnect is even between uh, within, within our own hearts. Amen? And so let's read here, chapter 2. Look, we're going to read all of it. It's, <laughs> there's heaps in it. All right? It's impossible for us to cover it in 30 minutes, okay? So verse 1, Paul starts with an emphatic you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. 
God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. For there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear in witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is, who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is, is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Yowzers. Uh, heaps in there, right? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll look at uh, we'll look at some points from this text. Uh, Father, we uh, we do pray that that you expand our minds. Uh, we know that 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 you know Paul here is being so careful to to you know in some sense help bring us to our knees so that we see our need for your Son, God. God, we pray that that your Spirit moves among us, God, in our hearts and our minds. Uh, with our consciences, God, uh, convicting us, God, helping us to see uh, not others and their flaws and their faults, but, but rather our own, God. And in that, that, that realization, God, we do pray you, you, you know, shine the light of your Son into our hearts and our minds and, and helping us to understand the power he has to, to transform us from the inside out and to make us a people that, that are very eager to do what is good, God. Help, help us uh, here and now, God, and bless our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Again, he, he heaps in here, right? And, and, and this idea that there's this, there's this fierce battle that, that is within us, uh, and, and, and uh, it's a battle between good and evil, and the reality is we all, we all sin. Right? And Paul is building up that case, as I said before. Uh, you know, Carl Jung, who's a, who's a, uh, a philosopher, or a, a psychologist, uh, who wrote enormous amount of books, right? He writes in one of his, his, uh, his writings called Approaching the Unconscious. He says, the sad truth 
is that a man's real life consists of complex pairing of unavoidable opposites. Day and night, birth and death, happiness and misery, good and evil. We're not even sure that one will prevail over the other, that good will overcome evil or joy defeat pain. Life is a battleground. It always has been and always will be. All right. And he talks about this, you know, this pairing, uh, you know, and many even Eastern religions have that concept of yin and yang, this balance. And, 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 and Jung here is, is, from a psychologist's perspective, you know, pushing this concept that, that we need to realize uh, that, that, that within us all is a battle. All right. And again, this is a, a concept that the Apostle Paul and even the Bible uh, had, had their fingers on this pulse way before philosophers began to figure it out. Uh, you know, but, but it is an important thing, right? Um, you know, and, and not accepting this reality. I mean, you do think about that Paul is spending an, an enormous amount of text, nearly three chapters, to drive home the point that we're all lost, that we all fall short, right? That, that you know, even aside from the content and the, the logic of his arguments, uh, should make us pause, that that's not always uh, an easy, uh, you know, uh, a concept for us to accept, right? That he has to spend that much time because in reality, uh, human pride is that formidable of an opponent. That it requires a great deal of, of care uh, to help us see this reality, you know. And, and failing to grasp this reality, even, even psychologists say that if you fail to grasp this reality of that there is evil within you, that, that you set yourself up in life for tremendous failure and disappointment. All right? And, and, and spiritually, the reality is, is, is that if you resist this, this, this thesis that Paul is laying out, that, that you fall short, that the gospel will never hit you as deeply as it needs to. It'll never sink into the depths of your soul and begin to change your heart and your mind if you cling to this idea that you are inherently a good person. The reality is that Paul is laying out here is that everyone sins and everyone falls short. Now, last week we did. We talked about them out there, right? But Paul has done that intentionally. He has, he has set us up in a sense, right? He has he is laid out uh, you know, a pretty a stinging rebuke from chapter 1 there in 18 all the way through the end of 32, uh, talking about how uh, there, there is no excuse for people who even claim they don't, they don't, they don't, there's not enough evidence for God because it says creation itself is sufficient evidence and the reality is they, they, they rebel against that and he's using they throughout that, right? Because he's talking about the outside world. But, but as I said, he flips that there in chapter 2 and he starts with a you, therefore, who pass judgment, right? Because he's just laid out a case for how lost the world is out there, the pagan world, and he knows in laying out that case he's going to arouse our self-righteousness in some sense. And we're going to all think about people who, who say they're atheists and they don't have enough evidence, and we're going to think, uh, but they're wrong. And Paul's done that probably intentionally to then confront us, right, with, with, with what's really going on. You know, he's, he's, a, uh, he's an effective, you know, he, you see this in families, right? You know, I used to do this when I was younger with my older brother. Uh, I, I would pester him and pester him and annoy him uh, until he would crack it, and then he would get in trouble. Right? 
Uh, and in some sense, Paul is doing a similar thing here. He's laying out this, this case of, of the pagan world to arouse the religious uh, pride to kind of come out from its hiding in its hole uh, and pass judgment. And in doing that, then he is going to confront them, right? Uh, and so we're going to look at kind of three, I don't know what you want to call them, maybe uh, massive uh, stumbling blocks to us accepting this reality that he's, he's talking about here of, of we all sin and we all fall short. That's not a concept just for people who are non-Christians. That's a concept as Christians that we need to hold on to. Right? And Paul himself demonstrates that later on in one of his later writings. He'll say, in the present tense, I'm, here, here's a trustworthy saying, I'm the worst of all sinners. Present tense, not past tense. Present tense, Paul thought that. Right? And so even whether you're a, a, a visitor just seeking God, trying to understand more about him, or you've been a Christian for years and years, this concept cannot drift out of your consciousness. You've you got, you got to keep it, Right? And so the first thing he talks about is this idea of, of that we judge others but not ourselves. We are very quick to, to pass judgment on other people, and we're very even accurate in our synopsis of other people, but tend to not be so uh, adept at our own self, at our own heart. You know, and if you read a more literal translation, um, it, you know, like the ESV, you know, verses 1 and 3, Paul uses the same phrase, and it's, you know, because he's, he, he's kind of creating his false character, uh, imaginary character, oh man who judges. And he keeps saying that, oh man who judges. Right? Not meaning it's just men, amen? but it's, it's everyone. But, but his aim is, is in, in this first rebuke is that of, hey, this judgmental person. You judgmental person, right? Uh, and, and he's going after him. And, and, and he's not saying you should never judge between what's right or wrong. Okay? He's talking about this attitude of judgment. This attitude of looking at other people's flaws and, and then viewing them as less than yourself, right? And, and, and of course, it's an interesting thing to do because especially if you're a religious person, you know that that, 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 that in itself is wrong, right? And, 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 and if you've read much of the Bible at all, if you've read one book of the Bible, you probably have come to the conclusion that there are things in your own heart that are evil as well, right? And, and so, so we end up kind of in this predicament. Of, of we, have this, we have this default tendency to see other people's flaws, but not our own. You know, and we do that. We, 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 we uh, create a paradigm in which we can look at people that way by creating these double standards. Right? We give ourselves heaps of excuses, uh, lots of rationalizations and justifications why we do these things. And it often, you know, is because other people have done something to us, and that's why I'm kind of angry at that person. You know, but when someone else gets angry, we extend none of those Right? We create these two different standards. You know, and, and uh, you know, Freud, famous, you know, uh, psychologist, you know, he called this moral gymnastics projection. Right? Projection, how we see things in other people, right? Thomas Hobbes, who's a political philosopher guy, he wrote that, that we are forced to keep, uh, to, in order to keep ourselves in our own favor, we observe imperfections in others. Right? So, so even actively to feel better about ourselves, we tend to then uh, steer our focus and our gaze onto other people's problems. And the more we see those, and the more we kind of feel better about ourselves, because we think, well, I don't do that. Or, man, I'm not as bad as Trevor in that. You know? And, and you know, we, we, we create this, this scenario. But, but we've got to understand, even as Paul, I mean, again, think about how much ink Paul is using to combat this idea. It, it, the reason he's doing so is because it is incredibly dangerous. I mean, even psychologists like, like Carl Jung talks about 
that, that this practice of, of projection or creating double standards or judging others and not judging yourself or however you want to look at it. As Jesus says it, going after a speck in somebody else and ignoring the plank in your own life. He, Carl Jung says this is incredibly dangerous because if we do this repetitively, we then push down our own mental faculties that should create self-awareness into a point where it almost becomes second nature. That this judging and seeing other people's flaws and ignoring our own uh, become, be, becomes something that happens on the subconscious level. You know, and he uses a cool term. He, you know, Carl Jung says that then when we do this, uh, when we behave in a manner in which is the product of our, he calls it that, that when we do this, we push, uh, we push uh, the, these thoughts into the shadow in our mind, into the darkness, and we lose sight of them. Right? And we become blind to them. You know, we've got we to gotta push back against this. Right? But we've got to realize that this tendency to see others' uh, flaws and, and, and failures way clearer than our own is exactly what Paul is, is going uh, after here. And he uses you know, kind of a, a, a funny way of, of driving this home. He says, look, when, we, when you do this, you are storing up for, for, for yourself uh, wrath. You know, and that phrase, storing up for yourself, is usually directed towards treasure, reward. He says, you're doing the very opposite of what we should be doing in terms of storing up. Instead, we're, we're storing, up, storing up trouble for ourselves. Because we're consciously choosing to turn a blind eye, perhaps so repetitively that it begins to happen subconsciously. And we are trapping ourselves in a cycle of pro- projecting... Uh, consistently going deeper and deeper into the shadow, as Jung says, so that we become even less aware. And we've got to be careful. Because his aim here is religious people, not people out there. His aim is people who know right and wrong, who know God's word, who knows, who are able to distinguish between right actions and wrong actions, right thoughts and wrong thoughts. That's who's in his target. We've got, we got to look at that soberly, Right? The second thing he says that, that the religious can often do, right, that can become a major stumbling block to them finding Christ, is the misuse of God's grace. You know, verse 4 is a, is a scary verse. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You know, you remember back in, in chapter 1 there, when he talked about the atheists, he says that they, they suppress the truth, the reality that they don't want to face, through wickedness. So indulging in sin, which then darkens their mind, so they lose sight of right or wrong, and, and so they're kind of, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? And that's, that's the process they go through. Paul here says that, that religious people, we don't do it that way, but we, in a sense, do the same thing. But, but what we do, in some sense, is a little bit scarier. Because he says we take these positive attributes of God, right? I mean, the riches of God's kindness, right? His forbearance, his patience. We take these good qualities, and instead of them being a, a catapult for us to repent, it becomes a crutch for us maintaining sin in our life. And Paul says, look, this is incredibly dangerous. 
Because then we end up loving passages uh, that are all about, look, God is, is incredibly forgiving. He's so compassionate. He's full of love. He's full of mercy. He extends it to a thousand generations. And, and we camp on these verses that are true attributes of God, but we're not using them as they are meant to be used. Right? We're actually using them in a way that's completely counter. Right? And instead of it, it motivating us to, to leave behind uh, you know, our sinful lives, it leads us to, uh, to, to becoming entrenched and stuck in it. You know? and, and I love how it says there, uh, contempt. Contempt, disrespect. Taking something that's incredibly valuable and just completely misusing it. Taking something that, that's a tremendous gift and a privilege, really. I mean, the, this idea that God dealing with us as a father and showing us patience and that he's doing that to, to give us the space we, we need uh, to, to repent and to grow, uh, to, to enable this cycle of failures that we often end up in to actually become uh, the, the means by which we grow and are transformed. Right? I mean, that's why he, he pours out grace in our lives. So we can embrace failure, not turn a blind eye to it, but so that we can in some sense accept it, see soberly, learn from our mistakes, and move on and not be a people caught in the past and, and ridden by guilt. But we take that inc incredible process and we actually use it to remain stuck. And that's dangerous. You know, Paul says, look, that, that's contempt. You know, there in verse 5, he, he says, you know, that, that you know, the, the reality is when we end up in this position is that, it, that, that our hearts are stubborn and unrepentant. Stubborn and unrepentant. Scary passages. Scary words. But interesting, those words are always paired together. And in the Greek Septuagint, the, the, the Greek Old Testament, uh, those words are used exclusively for idolatry. So we begin worshiping things other than God. And God views that as a stubborn and unrepentant heart. And they're, they're always used uh, driving at that, you know. And, and so Paul here, in some sense, is saying, look, that our root problem, even as Christians, is idolatry. Right? And you remember back again to chapter 1, his synopsis of the non-religious, the atheists, was that they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Right? And, and, and so, you know, we as sophisticated religious people, we reject those kind of fleshly idols. And we think ourselves free of idols. But the reality is, you know, as Timothy Keller says, our hearts are idol factories, and we find actually more sophisticated idols to, to worship. Yeah. Right? And those idols are a heck of a lot more sinister because they're things like moralism. Thinking, well, man, I'm a good person. I do good deeds. And so we begin to worship our good deeds, and, 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 we, and we find our worth in the good things we do. Right? Uh, you know, or, or, we, or, we, or we think, man, we're saved by our rule keeping. The fact that, you know, I, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I've been doing that, and so therefore I'm saved. Because we're making idols out of good things. You know, our own goodness or any of these things, right? Again, Paul said, no, 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 that's that's dangerous path. It's a dangerous path to go down. You know, and then the third thing he kind of, he, he kind of blasts on is this idea of, of, of having the root, having a lot of the depth of the understanding of religious things, but not actually producing the fruit that should be produced. Right? And Paul is not uh, schizophrenic. He isn't, he, 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 he's not confused, okay? Uh, you could maybe think he was. Well, he, he is, right? Because verse 6, he says, God will repay each one, each person according to what they have done. Right? But if you remember in the beginning, uh, chapter 1, 
you know, his whole, whole aim here uh, is to, to outline a, a righteousness that comes through faith. Okay? But, but just because the righteousness is going to come through faith, that doesn't mean then that deeds are irrelevant. Okay? And Paul's mind, and again, a lot of people take Paul's theology, specifically in Romans, and use it to justify a life that is devoid of the deeds of Jesus. All right? They take Paul's theology of, hey, I'm saved by faith, not by works, uh, you know, and, and they use it to say, you know, I'm okay, even though my life doesn't have any mark that looks like Jesus. And here Paul's going after that, you know, and, and he does it, you know, in, in a way that's, you know, it's quite interesting, uh, you know, but, but his point is basically that Paul is saying that works matter, but not as the basis of salvation, but rather as evidence for faith that then brings salvation. Right? Your works, your deeds, the good things you do or I do, these things are not, are not uh, meritous uh, you know, acts that are going to make us saved. But, but if our life does not have deeds that resemble that of God, and, and specifically of Jesus' life, then, then we have a more serious problem. That as the, the boys talked about months ago when they preached on James 2, that that tells us something quite profound about our faith. And that our faith is a dead faith. Not a living faith. Not one that, that is in line with, with uh, you know, producing deeds naturally that, 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 that align with God's way. And, and you take, you know, you, you, you look at Paul's whole, I don't know what you want to call it, like a rant there in 12 to 29, right? Look, look, at, look at that again, right? If you, if you read through that, Okay, and you substitute out law and put in Bible. Okay, and you substitute out, uh, substitute out circumcision and you put in there baptism. It's a scary, it's a scary passage. It's a scary passage. Because again, the, the, the Jews, you know, I mean, they viewed circumcision as just like a, a shield against any kind of judgment. Right? I mean, there's some rabbis, you can read their writings, and they, they say, uh, that, that no one is circumcision, no one that is circumcised will ever, ever face the fires of a Gehenna or hell. They viewed it that way. They viewed it as a, a, a badge, a shield that protected them from judgment. We can very easily do the exact same thing with baptism. You know, very easily. I mean, it's awesome. Franz getting baptized today. That's, that's awesome. That is the point where he passes from death to life, where his sins are forgiven, he receives the Holy Spirit. And that's an awesome, awesome thing. And for sure, the, you know, for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, Romans 8, right? But, but the, the reality of whether we're in Christ Jesus and the reality of whether or not um, uh, it was just a bath or whether it really was regeneration, that reality is discovered in our deeds, and we got to think, guys, if someone just watched our lives and look at what we invest our time and our energy in, if they just watched a, a highlight reel of your life, would they see the kind of fruit God expects? And it's not the religious attendance. It's not, it's not even the knowledge or being able to quote Scripture. Paul here, his emphasis is on the fruit, the obvious deeds. And he pokes at the Jews saying, look, guys, just because you have these things, that doesn't make you a Jew. 
Because the reality is the non-Christian world sometimes demonstrates the deeds of God and, and not even having necessarily the, you know, the written laws of God way clearer than the religious world does. Now, you can sometimes think that the Roman world that Paul was living in was completely defunct uh, and devoid of anything good. Uh, but the reality is there, there, there were many philosophers even in Paul's time that, that put high, more, you know, high worth in terms of moral virtue. They were striving to get, live good lives. And there were specific people even in Rome that, that Paul perhaps even had in view of, of telling these, these, these Jewish Christians primarily that, that you think you have the law and you think that the reality is there's Gentiles who do the law better than you do. And to think you're going to escape judgment? He says you've got to look at the fruit. right? And it's a scary thing if we end up having a lot of the root Meaning the understanding and, the, and, and uh, even the, the honoring of communion and, and baptism. But, but if the fruit isn't being produced, man, we got to think, what's really going on in my faith? All, right? All that is quite scary, amen? Everyone's scared? Right? You know, that, that our tendency to judge others but not ourselves, our tendency to abuse God's grace, our tendency to have the root of, of religion but not the fruit of, of, of religion, all of that is scary. Okay, how do we avoid that? <laughs> Let's close here really quick with four positives. We're doing all right on time? I, don't, I didn't do slides. So I have no idea how we're doing on time. <laughs> four, four, four pretty practical things, right? The first is, is you need to listen to your secret recorder, okay? You need to listen to your secret recorder. Here, here's what I mean by that, right? Romans 2, 15 to 16, these verses, right? Paul says, that, talking about the Gentiles, he says, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Right? This is an interesting verse. We've talked about this a little bit on our Wednesday nights, uh, about how the reality is that even uh, a moral sense of right or wrong is good proof that there's a God. And that's in a sense what Paul's saying here. But make no mistake about what Paul is saying, though. Paul is saying it is not possible to be declared righteous by just trying to follow the, the moral law that's written on your heart. Because the reality is, if we're honest, what do our consciences and our thoughts do? They accuse. Right? And Francis Schaeffer, who's a famous uh, church historian, he, he says of this passage, he, he says that it's this image of, of on Judgment Day, uh, God taking out, you know, taking off from around every person's neck a, 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 you know, whatever, wherever technology is at at that point, an MP3 recorder uh, that, that, that recorded every thought you had. Every prick of your conscience. Every time you said to someone else that they ought to do X, or maybe you should do Y. But that's recorded every time. And that, that becomes a law in and of itself. You know, he says, that's going to happen on Judgment Day. Whether it's MP3, digital, I don't know, no, I have no idea. I think God just knows it, right? But this idea that, that, that if we're honest with ourselves, because it's courtroom language, what he says there in 15 to 16, right? That, that their conscience bears witness, their thoughts accuse and even excuse. This is courtroom language. But he's saying that, that there is, within ourselves, sufficient evidence to see that we are in, in trouble when facing judgment. 
that within our own mind, our own thoughts, and our own conscience, there is ample proof that there's evil within us. And you think about that. Because from Paul's perspective, that's plenty. But you think about the last time someone tried to maybe tell you, hey, I think I see some things. How'd you react? Did you react as if, oh yeah, no, I already thought about that because my conscience had already convicted me? Or do we react defensively? Because if we react defensively, like we talked in the first point, we're, we're, we're choosing to turn a blind eye to something that's going to come at us at least on Judgment Day. But it's a heck of a lot more beneficial for us to face it now. And to use it as fuel to grow and to change and become more and more like Jesus. But we've got to listen to it. We can't turn a blind eye to it. We can't close our ears to it. We, we've got to train ourselves to be a people who, who in conflict especially, that our default assumption is that I have a plank and the other has a speck. That our default assumption is not, I'm better than you. No. That we all have so much evil within our own hearts. And we would do well to set to work of setting that right, rather than going out after everyone else's. You know, and if we can do that, if we can listen to that, again, we're not going to end up stuck. Because the more we look at that reality of that darkness, that shadow within us, like Jung talks about, and the more we accept that reality, and, and we can accept it because the gospel enables us to accept it, because our worth is no longer tied to our goodness, and if we can accept that, then again, it propels us towards growth. Right? Well, we've got to listen to it. Amen? You know, the second thing that, that we can do to... to you know, help avoid this pitfall and end up at Jesus is, is to follow the advice that, that Paul is quoting there uh, in, in verse 6, uh, you know, where he says there in verse 6, he says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. He's quoting there from Psalm 62. Okay, and I encourage you to take some time tonight before you go to bed and, and read Psalm 62. It's a great psalm, as all psalms are great psalms. You know, but Paul there is contrasting people uh, who, who reject the king Versus people who find refuge, whose stronghold. You know, and David is using language in this psalm. Uh, you, you think about what's your stronghold. That's where you go to feel safe. To feel at peace. To not be afraid. You know, and, and, and for David, God was that stronghold. God was who he turned to. God was where he ran to. All right? To find safety and security. And it wasn't just about the assaults from Saul and his men, but it, but it, was, it was a spiritual idea, right? Of David needing to find rest. Because there's conflict within our souls. There's this dividing line that runs down the middle of us between good and evil. And how do we face that? Well, we need to find refuge in God. You know, but what we find rest in reveals a great deal about where our faith is. And a lot of times to escape the anxiety about reality of our own lives we go to other places, right? We have a look at our bank account and see how much money we have. We look at other things in our areas, you know, maybe your success at work or, you know, how you look or your friends. Or, you know, we make, we make refuge, uh, refuges out of, out of a lot of things other than God, right? A lot of us just straight practice escapism. We don't even want to deal with the refuge thing. We just run and hide, uh, you know, like ostrich putting her head in the ground. It's just foolish, 
But, 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 but Paul here is pointing us to a psalm that's all about your soul finding rest in God. That doesn't happen naturally. Even in the psalm, David is steering his soul to find rest in God alone. Commanding his soul, my soul, find rest in God alone. He does it over and over and over in lots of different psalms, steering his heart and his soul to God and to God alone. You know, and that's a battle. That's a, that's a practice that we, that we all must do. Amen? Thirdly, what can we do, right? Uh, you know, persistence is important, right? Persistence. Verse 7 there of chapter 2 of Romans, he says, To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Persistence. Not quitting. Not giving up. Christianity is, 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 and you've heard it many, many times, it's a, it's, a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Right? It's a marathon. You know, Shakespeare ran again this morning, right? Did you run again this morning, Shakespeare? I saw it on Facebook, right? And, you know, Shakespeare is getting young and younger and younger, you know. But I like what he wrote. He said, at least I finished. May not have been fast, right? Probably was fast, right? But, but, but at least he finished. And, and the reality for, 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 for many, many people is not that Christianity is found uh, wanting, meaning it doesn't satisfy. It's that Christianity is found challenging, and they quit. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you've seen people even, even in this room up and, up and walk away from God. They choose to quit. Rather than persistence, sticking at it, establishing a pattern, fighting through it, right? Living in a godly way uh, as a pattern for your life. And for sure, it will have ups and downs. You'll have seasons where, uh, you know, overcoming sin and temptation uh, is, is easy. And you'll have times where you feel like the, 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 the world is crushing in on you. But, but Paul is advocating here persistence. Stay at it. Stay at it. Make walking with God a habit in your life. Right? If we continue to seek that, seek God, that's what you will find. It's so, so basic. It's one of the first scriptures you probably read when you began to pursue God was ask, seek, and knock. Because everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and him who knocks the door is open. And you're encouraged right in the beginning. Hey, make it a habit. Ask, seek, knock. You pursuing. God's faithful. He'll open the door. Uh, he's going to enable you to find. He, 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 he's, he's going to come through on his end, but, but we, by persistence, have to continue to make effort. We've got to do that. Right? And then, and then fourth and lastly, what, you know, how can we stay on this right path that ultimately leads to, to, to Jesus? we for sure got to listen to that secret recorder, meaning our thoughts and our conscience. We need to find rest in God alone, as the psalmist says there in Psalm 62. We've got to be, be persistent in doing good. Uh, but, but these things that Paul lists here, uh, you know, there in, in, in verse 7, uh, you know, we're meant to be, by persistence in doing good, uh, you know, we, we seek glory, honor, and immortality. It says that God will give those eternal life, right? But verse 8 is the contrast. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, They'll be troubled and distressed, right? 
you know, and, and, and you think about these three things, you know, glory, honor, and immortality. Right? Glory, you know, these are qualities that, that come from the life of God and are, and, are, and are really found only in God. I mean, glory, what, what, what really matters? What is of substance? I mean, think about Moses, you know, on the... Uh, if you study the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, and, and uh, Moses has tremendous encounters with God and, and uh, some tremendous lows where he takes matters literally into his own hand to try to rescue the people, and the people reject him, and he ends up you know, wandering around in the desert as a shepherd for 40 years. Right? But then he encounters God in a burning bush and goes back to Egypt uh, you know, a changed man, a transformed man, and, and, you know, he goes, you know, God works through Moses and does all the plagues, and it's epic, and it's, you know, movie-worthy, and even my, my kids love watching Prince of Egypt. Even I find myself watching that cartoon sometimes, you know, and, and it's all inspiring, you know, and then they, they leave having plundered, uh, you know, the most powerful nation in, in the world at the time, uh, having not even have in a military, right, and, and they're led out of Egypt uh, by a pillar of, of cloud by day and fire by night. That's kind of epic, wouldn't you say? And then they pass through the Red Sea, and that's awesome. And they go into the wilderness, and, and, and they, their, their feet don't swell from the heat. Their sandals don't wear out. They get hungry for bread. God rains down bread. They get hungry for meat. God blows some, some quail into the camp. You know, they, they get thirsty. Moses strikes a rock, and, and they get water. I mean, it's like, it's, it's epic event after epic event. Right, And then, then you get to Exodus 33, and it's nearing the end for Moses. And, and what does he want? He wants more of God. He wants God to show him his glory. He wants to see God. He wants to know God. It's a, it's a, it's a pursuit of a relationship. And there's a man that would go into the tent of meaning and, 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 and interact with the very presence of God and come out and his face would glow, okay? And yet, he's still hungry for God's glory. He's never satisfied. He always wants more of God. And, and the reality is, we, we, each person, each one of us, I was talking with a young guy this, about this concept on, on Friday, that we, we, we have an emptiness in our soul, and we try to fill it with other things, and it always leaves us hungry, right? But, but God and God alone is, is, is grand enough, so full of glory enough, that you can feed your soul on him and, and, and be hungry for more, and him still have more. And then be able to give satisfaction and rest to your soul. But do we seek his glory? Because Paul says if we seek that, man, we're going to find eternal life. If we pursue after that, but the reality is so often we, we choose the path of self-seeking. Rather than God-seeking, we choose self-seeking. What do I want? What's best for Sam? What's going to make Sam happy right here, right now, in this moment? Instead of, no, no, let me seek after God. Let me pour out my life in pursuit of God. You know, to pursue his honor and ultimately immortality. What only God can give, immortality. Everyone dies, guys. One of my favorite movies, you can learn something about me, is What About Bob? A very strange movie, okay? I love it. I showed it to Cameron and Lonnie the other day, you know, but there's a young kid in that movie and he's, he's hanging out with Bob, who's a psychopath, and, and they're, they're having a little chit-chat as they go, they, they go to, to bed at night. And, and the little kid is tormented by the thought of, you know, I'm going to die. 
you're going to die. You know, and they go kind of to this dark, introspective thing. But, you know, in some sense, it's comical because that's reality. And this nine-year-old was facing it with a lot more fervor than a lot of us like to. We push back against it. We don't like to think about our frailty. We don't like to think about the fact that we're, we're growing older and, and externally we are wasting away. Wasting away. But that's actually good for us to think about from time to time. Like we talked about in James. What is our life? We're, we're a mist. We are vapor. Here today, gone in seconds. But that puts us in right frame of mind. That helps us to see, man, I, I need God. I can't deal with everything that's coming in my way. I can't face death. We need God. You know, Paul is, is extensively driving towards this aim of getting us on our knees before Christ. Humbling us. And we've got to think, is, is, are we so much quicker to see others' flaws or our own flaws? We've got to face the reality that oftentimes we quote scriptures about grace to ourselves, not to catapult us onto repentance, but to keep us stuck in sin. And to help us to not feel uneasy about that. And to try to vanquish the guilt that ironically is probably from the Spirit, trying to push us in the direction of God. When his reality, grace should, should move us forward. And a lot of us, man, we got a lot of root. We know a lot of Bible. We attend a lot of church. We, we pray. We sing songs. But, but there's not fruit. There's not clear deeds that, 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 that reveal that faith to be genuine. And we got, we got to be on our guard against those stumbling blocks. And instead, we got to choose a different path. We've got to be honest about what really goes on inside. Listen to your conscience when it tells you you messed up. Listen to it the next time it tells you instead of fighting, own it up. Take the fault yourself. Because you did have fault. All right? Listen to those thoughts that accuse you. And be honest about them. Don't, don't conceal them. Don't ignore them. Don't cover them up. Don't push them into your subconscious. That is stupid. Because there's going to come a day where you stand before your creator and those very thoughts will be played for you at a time you can no longer repent. And you risk being filled with what I think is probably the worst emotion possible, which is regret. I mean, regret, the clarity of knowing what you should do, but unable to do anything about it. That's the consistent picture of Judgment Day. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing is that of, it's regret. But you have your conscience now. You have your thoughts now. Listen to them when they accuse you. Face them and use them to drive you more and more towards God and find rest in Him alone and persist in pursuing God's glory, His honor, and immortality. Life that's found only in Him. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll stand and sing one last song. Our Father, we are, uh, prayerfully, we're, we are sobered by Paul's warnings here in, in chapter 2, God, and we pray you help us, God. Help us to, to flee from the pride that, that, that fixes our eyes on others and the, and the world out there and, and thinks of ourselves higher than we should or better than each other, God. Help, help us to, to flee from that foolishness, God. Help us to be a people that, that, that your grace is with great effect in our life, God. That it changes us and, and, and motivates us and compels us uh, to each and every day choose to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you, Father. 
And we pray, God, that you help us to, to, to bear fruit, fruit that lasts as we, as we connect to you and find refuge in you and our worth in you, God, as a, as a, vine to, as a branch does with the vine, God. We know apart from you we can do nothing, God. And we pray you help us, God. Help us to be a people that, that produce a fruit uh, that brings you great honor and glory, Father. Help us in all these things, God. We do ask you to pour out grace and mercy on us, God. We know we need these things, Father. And we pray that you help us, God, uh, to use them as they're meant to be used in our pursuit of you, God. Again, we love you. We thank you. That's Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand and uh, sing glory, glory, hallelujah.